Welcome to the Stories Are Soul Food podcast, presented by Cannonball Books, the kids' fiction imprint of Cannon Press. Met a ghost of a king on the road when I first fell. Fire burning to my knees, to my knees I fell. Met a ghost of a king on the road. Uh, yet a wonderful, another wonderful Monday afternoon. Is It is Monday. It's Monday. Monday, uh, Monday. Cue the song, do, robot. Do, do, Chat GPT, do, do. please cue the song. Hey, we can't talk about Chat GPT anymore. That's right. You Actually, need... but let's do it anyway. Yeah. So there's that guy who dropped an AI generated song, right? Yep. You see that news? I didn't listen to it, but I listened to a little bit of it. Well, it's something by Drake, and I listened. Yeah. To so it anyway. was AI, but AI actually imitated the voice of Drake in the weekend. Had the weekend in there, mm-hmm. and then it went number one, and then it was like, you know, so everybody's as, as upset. Pop, as pop songs go, it was a pop song. Yeah, but then people are upset and the labels are trying to take it down and then everybody else is. And this is exactly, let me just back up because this is an I told you so moment. (laughs) And so I'm going to say I told you so to just anyone out there in the world and then we can just move on. So if that's going to hurt you, take your earbuds out. (laughs) I don't don't avail myself of I told you so very much Um, because my niece has told me that there's an I told you so room in heaven where we'll be able to take people into a room and just say I told you so. So you've already without, had without sin. She's like, so there's an I told you so room in heaven where we'll be able to tell each other I told you so without yeah, sin. And you're but, gonna say you were right. Yeah, you're yeah, correct. You yeah, did yeah, tell and, me. And so. you neither and nobody sins. I don't know. You already got one of those today that we yeah, can't discuss. No, so, yeah. I, so I don't know if you get. But I got no pleasure from saying it. I do get pleasure out of saying I told you so about this. So okay. here's the thing. Just philosophically, what I and what I said at the beginning of all this is the question is liability. The question is one of liability. Where do we place liability? So okay, yeah. With self-driving cars and other things and AI, if we try to do the little kid thing of like hitting the baseball through a window and then saying, it weren't me, it was the ball, it was the bat. Uh, if we if we attempt the Edenic excuse of it was the woman you gave me, mm-hmm. uh, if we do that and then if we make the mistake of placing liability uh, or trying to evaporate liability, just kind of throw it anywhere and blame the machine, then we are hosed. If we actually keep our eyes clear and recognize liability where it belongs, we're okay. So if I use an Adobe tool to copy Drake's voice and The Weeknd's voice and to put them into a song, and I did it with algorithms and digital computer programming, I copied it, and I stuck it in my song and I didn't have permission, then like, okay, that everybody knows that I'm pirating. Right. Now, because I didn't have to click, because I told it, hey, make a song, and this new Adobe tool did it without me having to do the clicking. Mm-hmm. It's still digital programming. It's still piracy. It is still just a computer program copying somebody else's voice. Right. And putting it into your song. And he was like, I didn't do it. Like, it, it wasn't me. I don't have any liability of any kind. It was the machine. It did it. It's like, <laughs> okay, it is programmed. It is a tool made by man for the use of men. And you used it to pirate. You're still the one sitting there in the seat of culpability and the seat of liability. Not the machine. The machine is not autonomous. It was programmed. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's not autonomous. And then you went to it and used the tool just like... You used the, the mouse five years ago and you went and you sampled and you copied and you, and you ripped stuff off and you sold it 
without permission. It's the same thing. Yeah. Like you're using a digital tool to steal the work and imitate the work of somebody else. It's not philosophically different, ethically different in any way. Yeah. When you say, but I didn't have to click, so it wasn't me. I didn't actually do it. That's pretty silly. It's like, well, yeah, you did. You just have, we just have made a different tool that's more effective at that now. Right. It's the upgrade and you use the upgrade to pirate. So before you wouldn't be able to say it was the mouse. It was Adobe that did it. It was the tape recorder. Yeah, it was Adobe. Adobe did it. Uh, I didn't bootleg this movie in theaters. It was the camcorder I held when I filmed it. You know, it's like, it's like, come on. It's just the same thing. It's just a different kind of tool. But anyway, moving on. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we're very good at talking about tools in our culture and Uh, what tools are responsible for. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) We're actually just not good at talking about any any responsibility of any kind yeah who is responsible for what that's true we're not good at guilt because we do yeah. either a hundred or zero yeah. we're, we're not good at we're it. not good at responsibility or guilt or really or shared or you... really anything we're just <laughs> we're actually just kind of bad at being people <laughs> being the wisdom the right wisdom right is now. gone yeah that's right yeah anytime anytime it requires wisdom yeah we we struggle um questions for you uh samantha Really liked what you were saying about interviewing grandparents, but then realized, what do you ask your grandparents? Mm. So she was wondering if you had some that came, I think, from earlier episodes about, you know, did you start with specifics or just a life life story? And uh, I just found, start. To you know, re- it's funny. I found a lot of places where they couldn't remember. So you want to you want to get the real broad strokes, the stories you already know. You know, so some of it is like you want you want to get the stories you already know, and you want to lay those down and right in, in archive those. So archive those stories in their uh, in their voice, but then you want to kind of probe, <clears throat> and um, you want to you want to probe a little bit and ask questions and and find the fuzzy parts, find the gaps where they're like, huh, I I hmm, like this is yeah. This is interesting. So I, I ask things like, what was your favorite Christmas present? Like, what do you remember? Like, just like, what do you remember from childhood? What's like a, yeah. like trying to find which days kind of stood out. Yeah. And, or, and there was a lot of fogginess. There's a lot of places where they couldn't remember. And I would just keep pushing. Be like, don't worry about it. Like, you don't, don't worry that you forgot that. Let's move on. Find something else. And when you do that, you find that they'll remain, remember things that are adjacent. So Mm, you know right. it's like you you end up things come into focus but it's not quite where you asked or and it's just what <clears> stories <throat> do your kids like to hear about you that that's the same sort of thing yeah you know i remember you know when did you get in trouble did like do you remember a time when you got in trouble or a yeah time, that, a, a yeah. time a time where you made a bunch of money or a time where you got tricked i don't know those yep. kind of story moments those were, things were key and it's funny so my mom's dad who was uh in uh, combat in World War II, Guadalcanal, and then uh, Korea, and got out before flying combat missions in Vietnam because he said nobody survives three wars. But it's, um, I asked him like when he was the most frightened, mm. like in all of his combat. You know, what was there a time when he was because he was always kind of a Mister Fearless. You know, <clears throat> he was very much a tough guy, and. Uh, the kind of guy who became a combat pilot, you know, so he's that that kind of guy. And it really surprised me that the most terrified he ever was, uh, was in a storm. 
Like he had his leg blown mostly off in Guadalcanal. He was surviving in a foxhole with Marines he didn't know with a tourniquet. Uh, he got hit in the zipper of his flight suit with a white hot piece of shrapnel that successfully whipped through the foxhole mouth on an explosion. A bomb hit not far away, palm trees, you know, launching in the sky. And a white hot piece of bomb shrapnel curved into the foxhole and drilled him center chest. Uh, exactly on the zipper of his flight suit. Like you're talking about. Oh my God. I mean, it was like a, he said, you're like a little white hot ninja star. They just came like, like just came in off the bomb and, you know, the zipper saved him. Like that's, that's the margin of his existence. His leg was already off at that point. You know, so he, his leg was attached basically with skin at the moment. And, uh, then he got hit in the zipper with a piece of shrapnel. So, I, when I asked him, I actually thought that's where we were going to go. I'd heard that story. I knew that story. Like when he was, you know, when he came to, he was unconscious when he came to in this foxhole, these Marines had dragged him into. That was, that's where I assumed that he, he would be think, most afraid. Yeah, yeah. That he was, a, he was thinking yeah. the end is nigh. <laughs> you know, it's right. like my leg is off, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> but the answer was a storm in Korea. No combat, just trying to fly through a storm. Yeah. And the level of strength and violence and just complete tidiness that he experienced. Oh, man. In that storm was the most terrified he'd ever been. And so that was, that was a really a surprise to me. And it was a story that most of people in my family never heard. Right. And so he, you know, he talked about it and unpacked it. And it was like, kind of like, like even going there mentally. Yeah. It was like, there's a reason why he like shut the door on that. And had tried to, because I think if I, if memory serves, he cried out to God, basically. And like, that was sort of like a repentance moment. And then after God saved him, he didn't follow through on his, <laughs> you know, on his actual repentance. And it wasn't until years later uh, yeah. that, that he did. And I remember his baptism at a lake house in Coeur d'Alene and the degree of uh, therapeutic release that that was for him. So it was not... There that, was, that was like, promise had been weighing on. Yeah, him. it was like there was something from way back that <laughs> that got paid off. Yeah, right there. Now, I remember my grandpa. He was a night fighter pilot, so most of his stories about war were just sheer boredom because the yeah. Japanese did not fly at night, so there were no no bad guys. But I remember him. He would he'd tell he'd tell the story of. I think his navigator got it wrong and they were flying away from base at night. You can't see anything, so you're just flying by instruments, yeah. obviously. Yep. And he he made the call to turn the plane around and start flying backwards because he was like, We're going the wrong way. And but that was almost the end of Fred Cole. Yeah, that was that was almost the end. <laughs> but other than that, it's just boredom. And he didn't drink at all, so he would just <laughs> he would trade his whiskey at the base to everybody else. I don't know, just sheer boredom and through all of World War II. He was a little young, I think, so he also just came yeah. in right at the tail end of it. I've always I've wanted to go uh there's there's things that happened. There's there's so many pieces that that show up when you interview grandparents. So my uh, my dad's dad, I began to discover his personality, his personality pathology. And I'd heard his self reputation, you know, his, his self impression before, but it wasn't until I really interviewed him that I realized, um, well, how wrong he was about his you own know? view of self. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like how he was not, he was not the kid. He'd always told me he was, 
And he <laughs> he was not the kid he believed to the end, believed himself to have been. He just yeah. was it just wasn't. So he actually and I talk about this in Death by Living, but he actually he was super ill and missed school. And there was this 18-year-old one-room schoolhouse teacher in Nebraska who took it personally and got him up to speed, like caught him up to his grade and everything else. And the downstream consequences of of her extra work were really significant. But he always thought of himself as dumb. Mm-hmm. Like he just really thought he was not smart. And so I asked him about that. I was like, okay, well, what'd you struggle with? Or what examples? And he was like, he was always fooling teachers and cheating and lying. And he just kind of like, that's how he just waved his hand at himself. And when I probed and poked there, he's like, well, for my science teacher, I like, I fooled, you know, I fooled her by memorizing the periodic table. <laughs> and yeah. it was like, you talk about this one when we, yeah. were, when we were doing that episode on yeah. your grandpa. That's so funny. And it's like, that <laughs> I fooled him. Yeah, you really fooled him, right? <laughs> you got you him. You sure good. tricked him. And when he was working the stockyards of Omaha, he learned all the constellations and bought an astronomy magazine and like studied all the stars and fooled a teacher by memorizing all the stars. Like I was like, that's just not fooling. You you're an idiot. <laughs> but it's and the thing that's funny about that is those things were revealed when you just ask somebody. So somebody old. Uh, represents themselves a certain way. And you and you just say, unpack, explain that. Like, what do you mean? Like, give me examples. You know, it's like, and that's, yeah. you got to get into the examples of their self-perception and yeah, and, and I mean, pull that back. I think I had my, I have my grandpa's memoir, but I never interviewed him. And so stuff like finding out just on the side, oh yeah, your grandmother and I eloped when we got married. Like yeah. That, you know, that sort of thing that just becomes a moment where you're like, I don't know. I'll have to wait yeah. till heaven, I guess, to find out. And my grandmother, more about she, <laughs> she was such a, she was such a sweetheart, but she lost. Um, my dad's mom was gone before I was, uh, got to this point. I was never able to interview her, but her stories were phenomenal. And I really wish I had been able to. Um, but then, uh, my mom's mom was such a sweetheart. Uh, I mean, she was just absolute platonic form of grandmotherly sweetness but not a storyteller mm-hmm. didn't really care to didn't really you know yeah. it wasn't had no need and and so i got so there's some things we got out of her and some things that we knew but there were i mean she was engaged to another guy the day she met my grandfather so there's a there's a story right you know like this is Right. Blind date. She got dragged along and my mom's dad is dragged along. I've seen a, there's a photo from that date and it's of my grandfather, I believe walking on his hands with his shirt off. <laughs> I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like. He's doing his best. <laughs> yeah. It's like that he's doing his bird of paradise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but my grandmother had a, she had a ring on her finger. You know, it's like, that's, and that, that's kind of wild. Like what's, what's. Yeah. What happened? What's this story? What's going on here? Who is he? Where is he now? And right. Oh, uh, that was something I never really, you know, was able to get out of her, but she had no interest in yeah. telling. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, there's, there's plenty of, there's plenty of things that people just kind of let lie. <laughs> yeah. They're thinking, I don't want to go back. Yeah. yeah. yeah no, I, I, I picked the road and this is the road I'm on. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess, uh, that, that's a good one here. Um, we also should, I should say, I mean, and this is, personal exhortation as well you should try to do this when you're uh for your kids and stuff when when people are as young as possible so i think about my parents uh you know we should be doing this now when they have no interest of eulogizing themselves or telling all their old stories but they can remember them all 
You know, right. it's like they're yeah, they're young enough that you know, it's like my dad's not seventy yet, you know, and so why would I be doing like, um, uh, childhood stories and all that kind of stuff? It's like, well, actually, now's the time because I could get his stories, I could get his brother's stories. Um, he's got two surviving brothers. Uh, his sister is in in glory, but the the ability to fill those stories in from three voices right now that would be both about their parents, but also about their sister. And yeah, you know, it's like that. It's like now is the moment, <laughs> but they, it would be more annoying for them. But like, Hey, do you have a couple hours yeah. um, on a Saturday and then another Saturday and then another Saturday? And we're going to lay down like 20 hours of now you're you know, thinking like a filmmaker. I think. Yeah. Inter- <laughs> just to- yeah. But just like, and then just stick it in the vault. Right. You know? Yeah. You know, so there's, and there's also things later, like when he's 80, we could make him watch, watch stuff, that, you know, in the interview and see what color he can add and so on. Right. But anyway. Yeah. I think about stories that are fading for me, even where like, oh, right. That happened. People will bring them up to me because I will have talked about something that happened on a book tour or whatever. When I was, I'm in Dallas at a book event and I tell some story that had just happened. And then three years later, somebody brings it up and it's like, oh yeah, that did. Whoa. I've completely, you know, I, I completely just moved on from that. And that's a funny story. Uh, then the nature of memory is, is, is an interesting one. Have you seen the everything sad is untrue book by Daniel Mm -hmm. Nairi? Um, that's, that's one written by a, his, his, his mom became a Christian and they fled Iran basically. So his story is basically being a kid an immigrant growing up in Oklahoma and he's uh, it, the novels told from his perspective as a, whatever it is, fourth grader. But, uh, his whole point is that memory, memory is a tough one because yeah. there's just tons of gaps in it. And, it, and his, yep. his idea behind the story is that, you know, as, as an immigrant, you've got even less because you're now out of the place that you're from. So you have, I have three memories. He's like, I got three memories of my grandpa and that's all I get. Yep. One of them, him killing a bull, like slashing its neck. One of them, him giving me something. And then these are my three memories and they may not be true. They may not be accurate. And it's it's interesting to me how bad our memories are. Right. <laughs> and it feels like, um, especially as we're, you know, the Bible's all about memorizing and how hard <laughs> mem- memorizing things is and remembering. And I, I don't know. Hey, we just talked about spirited way. Right. And remember, like memory and remembering are yeah. big there and rem- like you read the old testament you think how do they forget the law you know josiah like rediscovers it yeah they like, dust it off and how, think- how did you forget this it's like well pretty easily how how we've forgotten all the things we've forgotten as a culture right you know we just kind of move on um yeah memory's weird and so and actually trying to write memoir and write creative nonfiction is really interesting for that reason and so trying to like develop techniques to to reveal where things are foggy or where the edges are unclear because novelists have a tendency to really kind of like sharpen it in and focus it but where you run out of memory where you run out of data mm-hmm. you know at the edges uh is is pretty difficult and so you have to you have to develop the technique to just kind of brush stroke it like an impressionist where here's this here's this concrete thing in the center but as we get to the edges you blow the focus and it just kind of you know is gives the general idea of this is what was going on there tone yeah it's like tone and impression (laughs) and it must be what happened don't try to 
but don't try to declare or proclaim where it is foggy. And so learning how to, it's funny because I think it improved my fiction too, just realizing not to be over specific in the details, but actually know when to like mm. lose focus and when to like really, really show a thing and hang on to a thing. But I have, I've said it here before too, but I've said it a lot to writers. And I think this is one of the weirdest things about God, about what he does in his art is that secondary experience is remembered more clearly than primary experience. And so if, what, what and, do you mean by that? So it's a, um, if I make something up, mm-hmm. you know, if I do a good job and that's, that's a big, big qualifier. Cause it's not all secondary experience, but if I do a good job, yeah. Say I'm, I'm Tolkien and I write, uh, the ride of the Rohirrim. I write the, you know, Fangorn in, in the woods. I write that scene when the hobbits are hiding by the trail and the Nazgul is looking for them and, and riding past. If I write that well and the minds of Moria, whatever it is, drums in the deep, you know, if I, if I, if I write that scene well, you will remember that scene better than you will remember your wedding day. Mm, yeah. Like you'll remember it better than, you know, birthdays you know you'll you will remember that imagined and secondary experience that you've now read and you've vicariously received from another person you'll remember it with like more concrete handle and retention than your own life experience okay do you do you think even sequentially so let's say i remember going into brain surgery really well and i do like i i remember it but i remember we drove down the pch with the kids, we're heading to brain surgery, we're going to USC. There's all these things that I remember. Trying to sort them, like trying to put them in order, trying to deliver them would take a uh, concerted effort, lots of note taking, lots of like oh yeah, memory checks this, and, and, then like, we and trying to like put it together. And I, I would be putting a puzzle together. Yeah. I would be putting a puzzle together and it's one of the biggest things that happened to me in my adult life. And I would still be putting a puzzle together. Then this happened, and then there was this dream I had that I had the entire time I was in surgery. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was just this horrible, hellish dream that was going for seven hours, and in which I was stuck in a Delta regional jet circling LAX, and the AC <laughs> wouldn't work for seven hours. And they're cutting on your head. <laughs> yeah, and I was just trying to get out of my seat, and I couldn't get out of my seat, and like I was just I'm pouring sweat, which is weird because I was like ice cold, right? Through surgery, they take your temperatures way down, and you're in a very cold room. Your body's like, we got to heat this thing up. Yeah. And I was like <laughs> sweating and frustrated and mad. And the pilot kept announcing that we weren't able to land yet. We're still circling. And I, I mean, obviously at the time I didn't know that my surgery went very badly and was going much longer than it was supposed to. Right. You know, it's just going on, but I have this, I have a very permanent memory of this really awful dream that just kept on looping. And my two sisters-in-law were standing in the aisle of this regional jet staring at me and being emotional the entire time. <laughs> and then I, found, I find out when I come to, uh, they have driven down from Santa Cruz, California to Pasadena. They're with my wife in the waiting room and have been there on my, on my sister-in-law's birthday. She spends her birthday in the waiting room at this hospital. And I, and they made it into my nightmare, <laughs> like them, they're, them stressing out and they're out in the waiting room, which is really, which is really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's concrete. 
the sequence going into it, less concrete. There's lots of different scenes and bricks that I have that mm. are extremely concrete. You know, it's like these right. different these different moments and usually moments of like knowledge or heightened bizarre experience or, or things like that. But I could get you, you know, it's like I, I could tell you Faramir's story and his arc with more clarity and more retention and more memory than my own relatively recent saga through brain surgery. Like it's something fictionalized yeah. and secondary and delivered by another source lands differently. Yeah. And the fact that God made us that way such that our own memory is always fleeting and we're grabbing at it. But the told stories, stories told, like those yeah. actually ingrain. And is that because so, it's been kind of pre-digested for us or perhaps <clears throat> pre-focused? Uh, well, you could, yes and no. I think there's some of that. I think it's, I think it's the speed of life, the, the rate at which we have to actually like live and experience. But also I think it explains why we need preaching why we, i think we're designed to be this way we we actually retain the stories told mm -hmm. and so if you're in a culture in a family where stories are told and they're retold and they're told and they're told you know it's like and this is you're going to hang on to those things right and you're going to remember them more clearly than your own life lived you're going to remember those things and I, that's like i think a design feature yeah so that we actually grab onto that so if you tell the stories of faithfulness in your own family, if you're telling the stories of God's action in the world and, and other things, uh, and you're curating that, the, the curated narrative, when well curated, sticks. Yeah. It sticks like a tattoo. It sticks like a permanent mark. Right. You can't get out of your memory. Yeah. You will never forget these things. You might not pay attention to it, but you could also reaccess it and it all comes flooding back. What quickly. what's some of what's some of the advice you have for doing that sort of thing around the table? I mean, is it dinner? Is it a dinner time thing? Yeah, a or, lot of it. <clears throat> I'd, I'd say get good at stories as uh, a thing given in your family. Stories yeah. as things given and received. So, uh, m like, have kids tell stories of their day. Don't try to shut them off. Like when they're trying to tell stories of what what happened today. Help them refine into what was important and what's not important. And let's not talk about that. <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, it's like let, like let them and then give them critical feedback on how to steer it and how to tell those stories. Tell them stories. Right. Like tell them stories of the lessons you learned, the things that happened in your life when you were, you know, when you right. were bad and you received discipline, when you actually learned these things. Uh, stories of God's faithfulness. Uh, for your grandparents, your great grandparents, like just the yeah. the thread, but then also Bible stories. You know, it's and I would say that reading about reading the Bible is important. Obviously, reading the stories from the Bible is important, but I also think just telling them, like just telling them the story. All right. You know, it's like, and I I would say that, you know, sitting sitting uh, at bedtime and telling my kids Bible stories was, you know, I think more potent than. Uh, if we'd been around the the table doing devotionals, right. you know, it's like with the with the Bible open, and I'm just reading the passage, me telling them the story, and actually like real like looking in their eyes and communicating the the tension and the emotion of, you know, like of these moments, like yeah. and really telling them the story. I think it made it real in yeah, a much yeah. in a much different uh, way. Uh, recently, we had a reference to Donner's Oak in a song, and the kids are like, "What's Donner's Oak?" and and instead of just saying, "Oh." 
Boniface chopped it down. Like going into a story yep. of like, imagine you're this monk. Yeah, this is the marching, situation. Yeah, you know, marching into these these tribes. You, you're right; it sticks really well. And you so can, it's the story of Jonah, the story of Paul. Yeah, you know, it's like you're telling Paul shipwrecks, telling you know Paul stories. Those things uh, will stick more effectively if you actually curate it and narrate it mm -hmm. down to them. And if there's one thing we know from the Psalms, it's that those kind of big national yeah. or even family size events that, that would be novel worthy, right? Answers to prayer or moments when this could have happened, but this other thing did. Those things quickly get forgotten in your family. Yeah. And it's important to kind of have that that structure of, oh yeah, this happened in our family and then this one, and then God did this and we wanted this, but this happened instead. Yeah. It, it's it's interesting how quickly we are to to just sort of let giant things, things we prayed about for months, just yeah. all of a sudden. Like, oh, it's just take it for granted now. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. It kind of reminds me a bit of the Doubting Thomas thing, right? Because he got that primary direct tactile knowledge. Yeah. And then nobody else gets it now. And, 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 um, who is it? I can't remember which of the gospels. And he got smacked for needing it. Right. And then, and then later they say, Hey, you shouldn't want that. And I've talked to my kids about that. You shouldn't yeah. want to have been able to prove the Bible story yep. by touching Jesus. Like that's not what God wants us to live. He wants that sort of memory and the access to the word. Yeah. Which is which is secondary, I guess. So I guess I guess that's your point. Yeah, <laughs> it's no, not it's, the primary; it's the secondary retelling that really sticks, and that's um, super interesting. And I think it is if you've distilled it down. I think you're right. It's like it's such a strong flavor when you've removed all the extra seconds. Yeah, you know, because you think about how many uh, things we live that would be riveting in an edit, in a compression, somebody could write it. But right. our attention spans are such, and our own focus is such that when we live it at one second per second and have a whole eight hour day that led up to that thing, you know, like that's, it makes it all fuzzy. And it like, we get, we get to the big peak, the big, you know, the big narrative peak. And, you know, we, we have to actually strip everything else away because we get so distracted and bored. Right. So, but God is not bored with the genealogies of ants. So, yeah, yeah, that's, like, that's true. We're bored with the genealogies of the Messiah, and He's not bored, right? Like creating massive ancestral trees for every aphid and every every ant. It's like now this aphid bloodline <laughs> yeah. makes extra large and it's, ones. <laughs> and you, you think the Book of Numbers is is tough to to get excited about? Just imagine if God was like, you know what? Let me tell you. Everything I get excited about, all the things I get excited yeah. about, I can tell you, I talk about this in Tilt World, but like a 6,000 year history of one driveway rock, right. like one piece of gravel, every single thing you run into has a narrative that goes by, you know, back behind it to the beginning of time. Right. <clears throat> like all of it, every, every molecule of water, every insect has got a complete and intact genealogy. There is no part where he just waved his hand and it's fuzzy. And, and, he, yeah, didn't and, he, and it was like, a, you know, it's just not that part of the video game wasn't built. It's like, no, it's all been built down to, you know, every single uh, atom and beyond. So, well, I mean, you think about the stars, right? We kind of think, oh, there's the stars again. They've been doing the same thing forever. But I guess yeah. the Psalms are 
they give him praise. Like he likes that, yeah. that it's been there and has been there every single night for as long as you can remember. Yeah. It's like, oh, there's the Big Dipper again, you know? There it is. There it is. I'm there out, it is. Out, out I, there. So here's the question. Which aphid in the history of the world had the most exciting story? No, oh, I know. And the thing is, there is one. Yeah. There, there, there is an aphid of all the cabillions of aphids that have yeah. existed. There's one that had a fantastic, thrilling, amazing a lot Never. of them died in my grandpa's garden with the soap so water many, spray. <laughs> yeah. So but. many of them have just been dairy cows for ants. Right. Ants have just been milking the honeydew and hurting yeah. the aphids. Which but, one has the best honeydew is another question. So best yeah. story, best, best, vintage, best of vintage. all the aphids of all the aphids in the world, which one produced the best honeydew <laughs> and which one like ran with the ladybugs for a while and was a total outlaw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which one? Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's a question. <laughs> We don't really think about life like that, and we should. Uh, which, yeah, it's just a reminder of how tiny we are. Yeah. But the, the point being, we have to remove all the stuff that God includes in the narrative because it's not ultimately for us. Yeah. You know, it's like we're living it, and I think that we do have to kind of curate it for each other to hang on to it. So, and it's, and it's weird that he made us that way, that, right. it's, that it's, there's a stickiness when somebody tells you, tells you the story. And I actually... Here, true confessions it's weird it's hard for me to remember my own books um, okay yeah yeah and it's so you remember books you've read and loved better than way better read, than books i've written than books you've written. and it's and i think there's a lot of reasons for that and it's because i've iterated the books i've written i think that's my my biggest explanation is like i've written that book six times different ways and so as years pass like which edit like <laughs> that scene's in there right like oh no it's that it's not you know it's like it's still very much part of the narrative it's just i didn't include it yeah and so there's a there's the story and the story is like it's in my head the story is in my head visibly all of it like all of it's there but the prose craft of the story and which things I included and which things I distilled down, those things I don't remember. Mm, I don't remember right, which right. things. So like the whole scenes, I can remember whole scenes. Well, that's what I was going to ask Without you. lines. What's, you know, the, like, what's the best scene that you didn't include? Or can you not remember that? Oh, man. Or even just a good one. <laughs> a good vintage that's stuck in Nate's head. <laughs> we want to unlock it. <laughs> uh, there's, um, Yeah. There's the, okay. So there's a scene that I'm, I'm really hoping to include, um, either in like the 100 coverage graphic novel or in a TV series version, but it's the scene of, um, Henry's discovery. So, oh, okay. So the scene of Henry's discovery in the, in, in the wall and grandfather's writing in his journal in an empty house. And it's like, he's in this creaking, uh, you know, place that has been all these adventures and all this other stuff. It's under, it's all under control. And there's this massive disruption that hits. He's trying to journal, you know, and it's, it's just all very like quiet summer. So the scene I see is this old man by a window, you know, like curtains on the wind, you know, it's kind of stirring in the summer, summer Zephyr as mm -hmm. it were while he's writing. And then he hears uh, a baby crying, you know, there's like a real faint, baby cry and then he kind of thinks he's imagining stuff and then he's looking around and then just keeps going back to writing because it goes away and then like chaos kind of erupts so there's like lots of crashing and banging and there's all these other things from all these other worlds that have become aware of henry right mm -hmm. 
So he's got to, he goes up in the attic and the whole wall's going nuts kind of behind the plaster. Mm-hmm. He's already bailed on the cupboards. He's already plastered over them. So there's like his tools are there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, but it's all going to come unglued because there's this baby crying and everything from all these different portals are all wanting that baby. Yeah. And so his, the scene where he strips the plaster off has to deal with some of the other doors and reseal the doors and like stick a screw in one. You know, he he's mm-hmm. like trying to get it back under control. Yeah. Um, gets the baby out and then plasters all the way over, you know, the, the whole thing again. Nice. It's like that scene, like didn't have a home right in in the books uh there's a couple things there's a there's a couple beats like that through the trilogy but i i see that scene as as vividly as i see henry's other scenes gotcha. you know like where it's all part of the one story like mm-hmm. this is there's a story of henry right so there's the story of henry coming to henry kansas and all of that and there's all these yeah pieces that are there and so you assemble the best version of it that you, that you can for the needs of the market and the desire of your editor and the publisher and everything else that you send out to the reader. And then the reader receives it as if it's this like authoritative. Like, yeah, this is the story. This is it. That's how the reader should receive it. This is it. Right. And then uh, from the writer's perspective, that's an adaptation. Uh, at least from my, at least from my perspective. Okay. So. A film adaptation is just another adaptation of the same story. The story that is, is the one that I have taken a cut, you know, years to assemble via imagination. And there's like all the, you know, it is, it is very, very visible. And I ultimately watch a scene over and over and over again and restage it. And it's very, it's very much film cinematic. This is always how I've been all the way back to elementary school. I'll picture a scene. And I'll, I'll basically watch it play out. Uh, you know, say watch watch the whole thing play out with Henry. There's another one, Henry in Boston with uh, a you know government worker who's going to ship him to Kansas. Mm-hmm. So he's, you know, he's there. We have this scene and watching it all play um, is is kind of. And I'll, I'll I'll watch it play where. There's a fly bothering this woman. I'll watch it where it's like, oh, it's not a woman across the desk. It's a man. It's a skinny man. It's a fat man. It's a mantis. It's a spider. It's a fly. And recast and reshoot and reimagine. Gotcha. And replay the scene over and over and over again until Mm -hmm. I try to find the one that's hitting the tone uh, and has the effect that I think it needs. Yeah. And then like, okay, now that's it. Now write it. And as I write it, I'll be like, "Ah," you know, it's like, readjust and right you know and shift i do think um and this is kind of a side note for anybody who wants to be a writer a lot of people will reimagine the scene to what is written and this is why i think writing nonfiction is so helpful for aspiring writers is you need to try to capture scenes with your words and you need to actually be able to measure failure or success so when you're trying to write the scenes with your words does the scene change to like, are you moving the goalposts where you threw the dart, you know, at the at the dartboard, and when the dart is missing, you just move the board so that it hits the bullseye. You're like, this is what I imagine now. Like, so yeah. trying to have the the discipline to nail down the scene prior to prose. Now there are other writers who do this very very differently than I do. Then who's who's to say who's is better? We are Brian. <laughs> we are. Just, but there there are plenty of writers I read, and I think you never pictured this. 
you're you're writing ideas mm-hmm. and you're writing ideas and impacts you're not actually uh chasing like three-dimensional uh visceral scenes with your prose and trying to capture it you're just trying to tell me what happened next mm-hmm. um, and your idea is that this girl's going to be sad and so you just kind of write a version a complicated version of telling me that she's sad instead of giving me uh a scene that's evocative of sadness and that i then get to it with her i arrive with the character to the same right sensation anyway so I mean, all the, all this to say is when yeah. a book is done for me when i've written a book it's hard for me to even put a pin in how many different ways i have written it imagined it focused it selected it but when i read lord of the rings it's just one thing i've only ever met one scene right and i yeah. can be mad at the movies because it's different than the way the book was but when it's my own book it's already been different a hundred different ways before right. it ever got published i mean i guess that's what an editor does too is you know it's hard to think back to although occasionally you'll get good moments where someone say what was this draft like before right. you edited it and you'll say yeah. oh yeah well it was better yeah <laughs> <laughs> i wrecked it i went ahead and diluted it a little <laughs> i added, but, added water yeah um uh the you know you know oh this character that you like so much wasn't as memorable you know those kind of things are enjoyable when you can look back and see how a character through rewrites has become the person that everyone loves that's a fun that's a fun yeah. moment so i mean for me with ashtown when i found out that ashtown couldn't be five books mm. you know it's like that it was they were moving it down to a quartet and the work I had to do to kind of like take the planned narrative and try to like squeeze it in and try to really jam Empire of Bones with stuff so that Silent Bells could be the last book, yeah. <clears throat> that was tough. You know, it was, it was really tough. It's hard for me now to even go back to that fifth book. So 100 Cupboards for me was one massive volume and then became three. You know, like I wrote a big fat book. Mm-hmm. And then it got distilled and broken into three different, uh, three different things. Uh, and you're, you know, you're adding stuff that could have come later, you know, things from ideas that were just sitting there for planned follow-up books. And now we're going, this volume is becoming a, a trilogy, but I still have all these stray things. So, yeah. so those stray things that would have been book two or three, and now I'm going to do book one and three. Which of those things do I pull into Chestnut King and the Dandelion Fire and, you know, this other stuff? It's a weird, I mean, it's just a weird job. Yeah. And it's really, really fun to then just read the Space Trilogy. Then it just is. And it's going to be exactly this the next time I read it too. And I yeah. only ever, yeah. I only ever experience it this one way. Yep. And so I don't have the same kind of concrete memory of the scenes on the page. I mean, it all comes flooding back. It all comes flooding back when I am, if I have to read it, if I open a book and it's like, oh yeah, no, I'm very familiar with every draft, you know, but every book is literally millions of keystrokes, right? even, yeah, even a yeah. short one. And so the retention of all that variation is, is, uh, a little bit difficult at times. Well, okay. Last question before we leave. Uh, anything we, we will do, I think, Jesus Revolution for Lamp right. next week. So, in the past, you've occasionally given us, what should we list, look for? What should we in watch Jesus for? Revolution? Is there something that, 
you think we should head into Jesus Revolution with our senses attuned? Hmm. Well, let me let me just say this. I think when movies like Jesus Revolution are happening, uh, when they're being made, when they're being released, they become about this. It's almost looks like the fiction we were just talking about. They come around. They come focused on the ideas. They be they are engaged with by the viewer uh, as promotional materials or idea based, uh, ideologically based. What's its message? What's it doing? Instead of just thinking of it as narrative and narrative technique. So I, th I think that trying to watch it and focus on how is it doing its job? Like how is it effective? How, especially with Jesus Revolution, like how its pace manages to move you forward. Mm. You know, it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting because afterwards you're like, we covered kind of a lot. But there's not just a clean, you know, this is not a uh, three-act uh, quest film. You know, it's, it's different. It's, right. a really, it's a really different kind of a narrative structure. And they're trying to, you know, they're trying to capture a, a moment in time and a movement. Hmm. And hmm. Okay. So how does the narrative do that? And specifically in like the film technique of it all. You know, in the okay. in this in the cinematic technique, what are you what are you seeing, and yeah, you know, why is it effective or not effective? Like, why is it ineffective? What's it accomplishing? So when you when you have consumed it, like food, like what has it accomplished? You know, what does the narrative accomplish? And then you go back to the mechanics of it and ask how it accomplished that. Nice. Okay. So good. Anyway. Because it does, it moves more effectively than you might think. It feels, it is very slow. It's a slow movie, but it's the kind of thing that afterwards or late in the film, you're like, this is moving slowly, but it's never stopped moving. And you've been moving with it. You know, you kind of hang out with it. It's not trying to race. And right. that is actually really hard to do because it is actually trying to move quickly, but it's trying to move quickly without feeling like it. You know, it's like, it's like, you want it you want it to be absorbing so you need the speed to be like clipping along but you also you also need it to be uh a sunday stroll you know in yeah. terms of the ease with which people can can come along yeah so okay fun so anyways that'll be interesting uh then um you know if we we'll see i've uh talking to um john john Irwin tomorrow uh well by the time this comes out, it won't be tomorrow. But I'm hoping to get him to at some point jump on the podcast and, and handle some questions. Exciting. So, so we'll see. Yeah, send him in if you've he's got really, questions. He's, he's hectic busy right now, but it'd be fun to, to, uh, to get him into a conversation about it. Yeah, absolutely. Make sure you send those questions. Email, Facebook. Do we announce the next one or we wait? Maybe we announce that one to our email subscribers as a little perk. <laughs> <laughs> Look at Brian being all businessy. <laughs> yeah. I think actually you you said we have email subscribers, but we've never sent them anything. We've never sent them anything. We've <laughs> never done any to, to those people who've subscribed. So look at me not being because, businessy. Yeah, because <laughs> SAS, if you know, we all know that SAS really has its act together. We make it. We make a ton of money off of this podcast. Well, it's, listen, you can't do 111 a, episodes without having your act together. <laughs> this is an incredibly lucrative endeavor that we're on called getting together and talking yeah. about stories. Yeah. 
So I hope you all still enjoy it. This has been SASF 111. I hope you enjoyed this latest episode of Stories or Soul Food, and I have something special for you because I'm excited about it, so you get to hear about it. It is this brand new book uh, by Canon Press about stories. It's called 32. Yes, the number. 32 Christians Who Changed Their World by Dr. Glenn Sunshine. And it's stories of everyday Christians all around the world throughout history, the people you haven't heard of, true multiculturalism, and the way, uh, short stories of how their lives um, changed history and their own culture. It's inspirational. I mean, the Christian faith is a call to adventure. And of course, on our podcast, we love to talk about how stories affect that. And some of my favorite ways of doing that is talking about famous characters in history and not famous characters in history. Oh, and one more part. Uh, I get very excited about this stuff as a publisher. Look how cool the shiny black foil is on the nice yellow binding. It's just fun to have a nice hardback book. Anyways, this is available now. It's just releasing brand new 32 by Glenn Sunshine. <laughs>